we have a, had a local school which had a terrible reputation. They got very low score on you know, the Ofsted testing system. But they had adopted the talking stick process. Within a year, their Ofsted report had gone up about two levels. They were no longer having kids with real problems being excluded. People who had no prior experience, one teacher brought in this process, showed you how kids were behaving politely, not running and screaming and shouting and hurting each other, improved their academic work. So just sharing under a controlled situation really worked. So I'm an enthusiast. Hi there, you're listening to Adventures in Dowsing, podcast number 60, with me, Graham Gardner. And in this final selection of John Appleton's Megalithic Insights, we hear more about his theories on megalithic cultures around the world and the reasons why sites like Stonehenge are positioned where they are. But first, he talks about the use of talking stick, which is a tradition from the Native American peoples, as a tool for conflict resolution. Talking stick circles are something I'm absolutely convinced of the way we all all work. When I was in business, I was supplying educational materials to schools. And uh, I'd already encountered talking in a talking stick circle. Then when I joined Oak Dragon, the whole idea was to sit around a lot of people, we had 80 people sometimes together, with a stick called the talking stick, which is really the listening stick. If you were holding the stick, you spoke and nobody else spoke. And when you finished speaking, you passed it on to the next person who spoke. Not in response to you, but simply saying what was in their hearts, their mind at that time. And my first reaction to this was nonsense. I mean, I had had business meetings and chairman and stuff, and uh, I thought, this is a hell of a waste of time, especially as I'm going to have to listen to 80 people, one after the other. Because not everyone spoke, some people passed it on, some people talked the length, some people... But everybody heard, because there was no cross-talking, no people interjecting, nobody wanted to change the topic... And after time, I got very impressed by how it worked. So I was an enthusiast. Then there was a nice woman whose name I can't remember who started introducing it into schools. And uh, we have a, had a local school just down the road from where I worked, which had a terrible reputation. It got very low score on you know, the Ofsted testing system. But they had adopted the talking stick process. Within a year, their Ofsted report had gone up about two levels. They were no longer having kids with real problems, being excluded and all sorts. Um, I saw saw people who had no prior experience. One teacher brought in this process, showed you how kids were behaving politely, not running and screaming and shouting and hurting each other, Um, improved their academic work. So just sharing under a control situation really worked. So I'm an enthusiast. And uh, it works. Talking stick, call it what you like. It can be a bunch of keys from your pocket. It can be a stone from the beach. Any any object, a shell, quite commonly, 
a feather, the last one, anything which gave the person who held it power. The Native Americans used this, and there was a lovely man called Tecumseh, who was one of the chiefs fighting the Americans when the Americans were pushing westwards across the Ohio. Now, they had powwow. That word powwow is used. Powwow was a gathering of usually the chiefs, but anyone could attend. And they worked in the same way. Whoever stood up and was speaking was heard. Nobody interrupted. And then at the end they would say, I'm through, I'm done. Somebody else would speak. They didn't do the circle. They simply, when somebody stood up, they were acknowledged. But they also had a system where they didn't, if they couldn't come to an agreement, then they said, all right, we'll put that matter on one side and come back to it later. He spent five years riding all the way up and down the country from the Canadian border right down to Kentucky, trying to get people to get together to resist this westward march of the white men, the invaders, because they could never agree. He had to agree that, well, we'll leave it for now. So the story of Tecumseh is worth reading, but it shows that there are benefits in organising your way of discussing things. Looking at the House of Parliament recently, I thought, well, they could do with some of that. Why do we have this adversarial system, us and them? We're all in this mess together. Why, why don't we agree how to talk about it and to resolve it? We're solving problems, not scoring points, which is what most people seem to want to do. I'm not interested in opinion. I'm not interested in what you believe, what you think. I'm only interested in what is true, what is fact. You can't work to solve problems with opinions. You have to do some work on establishing the reality. I'm pontificating, I'm good at doing that too. Yes, John, you are very good at pontificating, but fortunately it's uh, informative and entertaining, so we'll let you off with it. Uh, in my own experience, uh, the Talking Stick Circle is a very useful tool for uh, resolving conflict and uh, making decisions on things. However, if there's a large group of people, it can get a bit tedious and take a long time to reach consensus. I do recall uh, when I first met John at the uh, Oak Dragon Camp down in Cornwall many, many years ago, one of the talking stick circles of the morning took three and a half to four hours before everybody had reached agreement on the, the subject. Um, so yes, you need to be prepared to spend the time with talking stick, but it is still a very valuable tool. Uh, anyway, at this point in the discussion, we uh, took a break for a cup of tea and got to asking John about uh, how he got his information these days. You know, what sort of things does he like doing? I know he has a lot of books, but it turns out he's also quite a fan of stuff on the internet, like podcasts and YouTube videos. So I'll let John tell you about these in his own words. Uh, and the most popular one, I hate to have to admit it, is a lovely man called David West who does firelighting techniques. That comes out of my sort of bushcraft, woodcraft interest. Mm -hmm. He can make fires in all sorts of interesting ways, not with a match, yeah. uh, from bow drills, which takes me back to Ernest Thompson Seton. When he came to Britain, he was doing a, a round of talks. And in those days, people wore evening dress. When it got to the end of the meal, lighting cigar time, he would reach into his coattails and produce a bow and a drill and a board 
use it to create a, an ember and use that to light his cigar. And in a couple of minutes, he can produce fire. And uh, I think, oh, I love him for that. That's good. So that's my favourite one. But I look at everything. I mean, Stuart Hameroff came up on the science stuff. One of the things is sailing. I mean, I haven't mentioned sailing, but I was a very keen sailor all my life. Now I'll do all my sailing on YouTube. People like um, uh, Dylan Winter has done a thing called Keep Turning Left. He sailed his boat out of Southampton and turned left. And then in the end, he worked his way all the way around, up around Scotland, and eventually got around to Glasgow, where he had to sell the boat. He ran out of money. But I have sailed with him. I, I look at um, what they call these days bushcraft sites a lot. I was on the Isle of Wight, as it happened. The man who's got a new tarpaulin, only using one pole, produce a complete tent from one flat sheet of material. And those sort of things entertain me. I look at some of the financial things. I look at positive money because I'm interested in how they're getting on convincing the world. I've been recently intrigued by, horrified by the goings-on in the House of Commons. I found myself watching that as if it was a soap opera. It's certainly mad enough to be a soap opera at the moment. Two things, minimal housing I'm interested in because there are a lot of people who would be better off in a house even if it was really tiny if they had an actual space to be in. A few years ago in Andover where I live there were six rough sleepers. There are now repeated to be approaching a hundred. That's the wonders of our present society. And you see them wandering through the town carrying big bags of stuff and roughly dressed. When a subject is sufficiently interesting and the book is good enough I'll buy it. I never never read fiction. I don't buy books for entertainment anymore, so yeah, it's mostly research. I mean, when I was doing the work on The Goddess of Avery, I acquired half a shelf full of books with goddess references. Yesterday, I I found a wonderful um, site put together by a lot of my favourite feminists in America on the rise of the goddess which goes right back to early times, and of course that, that relates to my interest. But people like Starhawk, I really have time for. Merlin Stern or something like that. I'm not bringing names to mind, but they were sitting in a group chatting, and they were bringing up the images that went with there. And I find I've been to places like Malta, Gozo, where these ancient temples are, which are clearly goddess-oriented. The buildings are in the form of a very large, fat woman. And I'm surprised at myself. I don't think I do. I'm pretty inexperienced on using computers. Oh, maps, of course. Maps came into my life through Watkins, and I've been a complete map freak ever since. When did dowsing come in? I was quite convinced that dowsing worked a silly thing to say is when I was able to douse to find my lost pendulum. I had to borrow somebody else's, went off dowsing, and there it was. I found my own pendulum, which was quite a nice surprise. We used to camp on a field near Sirencester, and I drove down the lane that approached it and kept on looking across the field at this low, linear thing across the field. 
and I was convinced it was a traces of a lost lung barrow. So um, I got friends to come over there, psychic friends said, yeah, it definitely is. Eventually we spoke to oh, Ronald Hutton, reader in history at Bristol, came and I said, look, have a look at this, Ronald, I think it's a barrow. Oh, it's quite likely. Somebody spoke to Will, the farmer, and uh, he spoke to someone in the museum in Sarantester. Uh, they got in touch with somebody in Bournemouth, I think, archaeologist, and uh, they came up and did an exploratory dig. And and his partner wrote and said, well, I'd like to come up to have a look. So I did. And we arrived in the pouring rain, and there was this poor, very brave young student, archaeologist, who'll come and spend a week, fortnight, camping in a field for no money so they can learn archaeology. And he was digging away as we wandered over. I said, what are we finding? He said, yeah, yeah, we, we've got a ditch. You know, there's a ditch out of the side of the long barrow. So it was on, it was a barrow. So, but he sent a message to Ronald because he knew that Ronald was involved. And Ronald told me that this was the first long barrow to be identified and not excavated or excavated and not previously identified for a hundred years in Great Britain. So I discovered a hundred-year-old unidentified long barrow, which either proved something or I was dead lucky. I'm still very proud of that fact. Hi, my name is Mosa Bashevska, and I am a multidimensional artist, musician, creator of beauty. My life work is to bring uh, beauty and joy to the world through my art and through my music. And you are listening to Adventures in Dowsing. Well, not much uh, good news to report this time, I'm afraid, as uh, COVID restrictions are still in place in many countries. And at the time of recording, which is uh, August the 2021, uh, lots of events are still being affected. And you know, we just don't know how things are going to pan out. Uh, but for listeners in the United States, uh, the Ozark Research Institute are planning to run a series of workshops from the 27th to the 30th of August in Springdale, Arkansas. And that features guest speaker Melinda Iverson in, with other speakers like Alan Handelsman, Jeannie Geringer, Dr. Addy, Two Owls, and uh, many, many more. So I do hope that manages to go ahead in, in uh, real life. You can find out more details at ozarkresearch.org. And the Flagstaff Dowsing Conference, which replaces the Dowsing Southwest Conference, is scheduled from 7th to 11th of October in the Little America Hotel in Flagstaff, Arizona. And this is a much larger affair. It has a full five days of talks, workshops, and even a beginner's dowsing school. More details on that one are at dowsersouthwest.com. I was actually scheduled to present at that conference myself, but uh, at the moment, the US borders are still closed to UK and European travellers, so uh, regrettably, I've made the decision that I'm not going to attend in person. I will, however, be running an online version of my planned workshop, which is called At Least 10 Ways to Space Clear Your Home, and that'll be on Sunday the 17th of October, and I hope to have more details about that workshop up on my own website at westerngeomancy.org very soon. Finally, a couple of bits of podcast news. Uh, We were nominated as one of the top 20 UK health podcasts of 2021 by the website beststartup.co.uk, which is rather nice. 
probably kind of meaningless, but it's always nice to give a shout out. Um, I'll put up a link to their page in the show notes if you're interested to uh, check out their rankings. Uh, and I was also now listed on the podcast directory at verbal.com. That's V-U-R-B-L.com. So if that's your favourite uh, podcast source, then you can find Adventures in Dowsing there. But now let's get back to our talk with John Appleton. Uh, we heard John talk about Alexander Tom's work in uh, surveying ancient sites and stone rings. So next I wanted to get him talking about his own megalithic constructions. And he mentions that he first got interested in this subject by working with Ivan Macbeth, who you may remember from Adventures in Dowsing episode 45. So let's get back to John. Alexander Tom came up with a measurement he found expressed in all the stone circles and it was a megalithic yard which is 2.72 feet um, anyway I was interested in this and another influence comes in that's Margaret Ponting up in Lewis who's done a sterling work in archaeology on Lewis has not been regarded sufficiently but anyway among all the things she found was a little bit of ivory probably walrus ivory with a sort of markings on it suggest it was part of a measuring rod and that came out as quite a small measurement which she called the Meg I like that because it goes with Megalithic and Margaret and I'd already been thinking well there must be multiples of the Megalithic Yard and subdivisions of the Megalithic Yard so quite a lot of time and energy went into trying to sort out what they might have used as soon as you have a metric, as they say, a measurement, it tends to be incorporated in things that are made. So if you measure sufficient objects and there's peaks on the measuring thing, you can prove that they were there. And anyway, to cut a long story short, I've got a great big pole with two megalithic yards and subdivisions all the way up, and subdivisions right down to the smallest one, which I think is about eighth of an inch God knows why they needed it perhaps they just did it because you naturally keep on subdividing but I think it's it's real and I was quite interested I had my measuring rod with me when setting out or wanted to set out a labyrinth and the guy who had turned up who was going to pay for it said oh well, can I have one of those sticks and I said no <laughs> I said I'd think about it and the answer was no we used to sell exercise books with all these rods, poles and perches and inches and hands. I mean, that, that hand for measuring horses is still in use. And it's basically for megalithic inches. Yeah, yeah I think it's bearing in mind very strongly that the um, people who made all these things had intelligence and capacity and were building them for a purpose. They aren't a random ring of stones. They are a very specific ring of stones. Um, One of the important lessons I learned from you was to look across the circle yeah. not be in the, in the centre. And, and that business I've been pointing out to lots of people about, the way to get a real alignment is to get two stones and look through the gap. Because you can only be one accurate spot to get it. And so you don't look across stones, you look between stones. Mm. Um, and you can do that in two ways. If it's tall, stone is tall enough, you can use your eye. But if, if not, you can put a pole next to the stone and get that alignment. 
Um, because accuracy is important in, in stone circles if they're going to be used to sight up you know, in summer sunrise, but that's the corniest one of the lot, but the equinoxes and the solstices. And then, with plenty of evidence, they were interested in the moon, because mm. the moon moves north of the sun's maximum position, and then south again over a period. And how much they really understood what was going on, or whether it was just one of the mysteries that these things happened in the sky. But right at this, this moment, I'm interested in the relationship with the stars. I think it's been underexplored. Well, it's, it's harder for us to keep track of that now, because the stars move. Yeah, well, the stars have moved. Yeah. But what's interesting, you know, my God, is in the 3,000, no, more than that, 5,000 years, the, all the stars have moved north in the sky because of the procession of equinoxes. But they would never observed that themselves. But there's a lovely site in Mallorca that they investigated and uh, it was clearly pointing to a star, I can't remember what it was, a bright star south, low on the horizon. And um, they lost it. The, the alignment that they've been using and had structures to point to was no longer useful. They moved away. That's when that particular... Yes. Side. So they felt their contact with the goddess or the god or whatever was lost. But in the year 2000, by pure coincidence, or 1999 and a bit, the stars in the southern hemisphere at midwinter reached their highest point. And from now on, for the next half the cycle, next 13,000 years, they'll be sliding down. And so in a few thousand years' time, her feet and um, Orion's lower part will have sunk below the horizon. Mm -hmm. And her eyes will be much the closest to the horizon. And you know there's a lot of images of goddesses which have shortened squat. Mm -hmm. I have a suspicion that's because that's what they were seeing at that time. Mm -hmm. Having decided the eyes were the head of yes. a regal figure, a divine figure. It may be that they had a memory, a folk memory or something, a um, myth, about the goddess being taller in the past. I don't know how long myth goes back. I mean, we, people moved into Britain immediately after the Ice Age, which is about 10,000 BC. So that's not all that long in terms of astronomy, mm. but it's a fair old chunk of out of a... 13,000 year cycle. I thought, yeah, it's nearly a whole cycle. Mm. Well, I haven't really considered that very much. I should do. But, you know, did the people who had to live in caves because it was the safest and driest and, believe it or not, warmest place? Another thing I never knew was that you could walk up to the ice edge. When those thick ice sheets were on there, they melted back like a line of cliffs. And they ground that had been exposed by the melt, it was quite fertile and no trees and things, so the animals went there for the grasses. So the, the hunters went into that area, right up next to the ice. Well, I like that idea, great. And, you know, the way that the Sami in... in so what was your first stone circle that you worked on, John? How did you get into My building? first stone circle? God, that's a good one, isn't it? Mm. 
I think I was taken to Stonehenge, as kids are, by my father before the war, 1939. He went off during the army as soon as war was declared. Um, so it would have been summer of 39. But I can't say I remember it. You know, everyone ends up at Stonehenge. I've got pictures of my son at the age of eight standing with a measuring pole next to the trilith, one of the trilithons. So really, it would be when I was able to start moving about again after the war, back on my bicycle. I certainly discovered Avery on my bike while cycling around and camping, and of course Stonehenge. Still available to the casual walker in. Mm. No fences, no pay box, no, all that rubbish. And I started to look at um, standing stones. And because I was into Alfred Watkins at that age, mm. then I was looking for hill forts. And tumuli had always been an interest. I remember as a little kid being shown tumuli. There was even a little song. The woman called Taki, who was actually Romanian and was in the kindred, and uh, she and her husband, I think was somebody on the run, as it were, keeping his identity secret, lived down in Sussex in a, an old quarry, and they dug into the quarry wall, it was sandstone, and made a whole house inside the complete with chimneys coming out the top and posts holding things up. And I remember being taken to it. That was, it must have been just before the war. I loved it. And of course, when Tolkien came out and we had Hobbit Hole, my immediate thought was, oh, I've been in one of those, you know, I had. They didn't have any windows to the outside world because they were sort of keeping it quiet. And eventually they were told to be off out of their underground so they got a caravan and stuck it in the field just down the road. Then they were told they couldn't leave a... Oh, got a shed. Moved into the shed. Then they were told they couldn't stay there. They could only have a mobile vehicle. So they painted wheels on the side of this shed. <laughs> and they stayed, I think, throughout the war. And I, not long ago, I opened a book, one of my father's books, and there was a letter to um, the family from her which is just a sort of wishing you well letter. Then, of course, I thought, oh, that's wonderful. Close the book <laughs> with the thing still inside. And I don't know which book it was. Um, so there's this real trace back to somebody I met who had an influence. Yeah, I was really impressed. They had carved wooden support. They'd got wooden supports in. But he carved them, so there was, you know, hobbitry to a T. And, of course, that business of living like that has always appealed to me and I just like the idea of people, the tramps as I've mentioned were an image to me which was interesting I, I didn't fully comprehend the difficulty of their lives and the sadness of it when I was younger but then, then of course I got into Tom and so circles became dear girl so every time I got near anything like a circle I went and checked it out um, but it wasn't until the 50s, I'm not sure when Tom's books came out, it must have been early 50s, that I took them more seriously and looked at them more carefully. 
Well, Ivan was the big influence on me starting actually doing building. Um, he came when he was active in Oak Dragon and he started things and he did the Swan Circle in uh, Glastonbury mm -hmm. and I remember being very impressed by that. And uh, curiously, I remember seeing him sitting waiting for people to catch up, building a little dolman, sitting by the roadside, just picking up stones and making them. I was interested in the design of circles, the layout of them, long before I actually built one. Well, you know, I worked on the Brittima stone circle. Yeah. Um, and that was interesting because we found they had one big standing stone, but in the field adjacent, there were a lot of exposed flat stones. And uh, Sig, me, and somebody else, I think it's Merlin, did an independent survey of these bits of exposed stone. And I was looking at it from the astronomical point of view. And uh, Merlin was looking at it for the energies. We finally met up with our own drawings and ideas. And when we saw each other's drawings and ideas, they were so in phase that we were all, I was jumping up and down saying, oh, hey, fantastic. So then the megalithic order of druids was formed, MOD. Of course, what are you doing? Oh, we're doing work for the MOD. Was entertaining. <laughs> so we got permission from the people who were at Britain to excavate these flattened stones, believing that when erected they would form a circle, because it did on the plan we drawn. And it did. Um, and Jamie was the voice, the man who made the decisions about who did what. And when we were moving a stone, Exactly when they're quite heavy bits of stuff, you do not want a lot of people saying, Why don't you push that on this side? Or shall I put a piece of wood in here? You know, don't. One voice. And he was excellent. And we worked on the basis that we would do one lift one stone over a weekend, or sometimes it was a week, once a month. Kept pretty close to that schedule. And there was one sad moment when one of the stones, when it was being moved, cracked in half. So it became two stones, which are known as the Gemini stones. And one really big one on the back and the, the south-west corner, we called the Owl Stone, because having heaved it up and packed it down, we used to put turves around to make it look as if it was been there forever. And it was midday, an owl flew out of the adjacent wood, so I came round, went, ooh, flew over the stone, had a shit, dropped on the stone, and went back into the wood. It was a magical event, amazing. <laughs> then there was one which had a fox, um, what was it called, foxhole. Anyway, we, that was the fox stone. Finally, we got all the stones up, and it was really amazing. Instantly, you felt the energy of the place. And... Emeril, who lives down there, took charge and got a group of people who went and do regular ceremony and meditation at the stones. And they're still there. Breath is important for me.
And of course, it's right under Carningley, which is part of the system that um, Robin Heath has worked on. We just worked on the sense that we had measured it and felt it, and it was right, and it was. That sound was still significant. One of the things that I haven't mentioned is my work down in Wales on what I'm calling Stonehenge Zero because it worked a bit backwards. I discovered a place where if you took the alignments of the midsummer rise and set, then the equinoctial rise and set, then the cross-quarter days, all of these lines, or most of them, had clear views to natural peaks or events on the horizon. So I was able to just draw lines from these foresights back on the right angle, and they produce a little network of crisscross lines. So if you, I can only say that, if you put up a circle at that spot, it would have all these natural foresights built into it, and you'd have a complete annual calendar site. Now, some of the lines are missing. So then poking back further, I found all sorts of interesting subpositions, not marked with distant foresight, with much closer foresights. One of them is a thing called Hangstone Davy, which is a big boulder. Well, it's only about a couple of feet high, but it's a big lump. And it's known as Hangstone Davy with a story attached that this chap had stolen um, a sheep, tied its feet together, put a headband on himself, was walking off with sheep. And uh, he got to this stone and thought, oh, I'll have a rest and sit on it. So he sat down and the sheep slipped and the band came down around his throat and he was strangled by the sheep on the stone. Well, it sounded like a, a story invented to explain something, but that stone is on a line. And then looking the other way, looking out to the north-west, there's a missing foresight, so to speak, if you look along the slope on the grass, there's a little lump that just sticks out of the line of grass. And uh, I can't prove it, or I can say there happens to be a lump of stone on exactly the right position and just visible over the cliff edge to mark that particular direction. So I spent mm, 10 years off and on, very off, um, working on that material so and I haven't dared publish it and I suppose now is the time whether whatever happens now it all started in the hotel they're called Druidston wouldn't you know and up on the cliff behind Druidston Hotel there is a standing stone but it doesn't seem to play any particular part but I was sitting there looking out of the dining room window and the sun midsummer near midsummer sun was setting behind the small but mountainous looking peaks behind St David's and I thought I don't know it looks like something significant so I said to Jane there's a sunset over the cunningly um at midsummer oh yes she said we see it often I thought oh that's very interesting well, that's how it started I thought oh I'll look at that line the line from the midsummer sunset doesn't come through the hotel it comes a little bit further north 
But um, it was a starting point for looking at it. And some of the fall sites are extraordinary. One out to sea to the west, the equinoctial set, is just a tiny bit of rock that happens to poke out of the water. Not natural, but it just happens to be on the right spot. So I think that the guys who pulled the bluestones out of the mountain just up the way uh, must have been very impressed by this natural place and set about enhancing it by building a much smaller but specific circle with the bluestones on the meeting point of the cross lines, which at the moment is a trig point, believe it or not, what they call order survey trig point. And then you get to the business of all, when they moved them to Stonehenge, Stonehenge location, before Stonehenge had happened, they must have had a reason. You don't suddenly decide to take a whole group of stones and go woo, cross country with them. Now, in order to get the station stone rectangle, which at Stonehenge is quite significant, you have to be further south than the location of the place in Wales. Of going south from Wales means going out into the Bristol Channel and you're too far south by the time you hit North Devon. And they must have had some sense of the shape of the country um, because they realised the nearest place where they could get the alignments they wanted to see, looking for mathematical completeness, was um, the Salisbury Plain. Now, as it happened that the place we called Stonehenge, has had people living close to it for many, many years. There's a place in the woods just across the A303. They've been doing excavation on recently, and there is indication of people who were hunting the orcs and wild bear um, way back, long, long before Stonehenge was built. But they used it as a campsite and a base and must have been able from Stonehenge area, the hill just across the way, to see what was going on. And what really amused me or interested me was they found that this water that was bubbling up in the spring they were using above the river turned flint pink. So they could put white stones in and sometime later they get them out again and they got a sort of fleshy quality. And uh, it still does it, apparently. So it would have been convenient to take the sands from Wales to Stonehenge in terms of getting the alignments. But you still have the technical problem physically getting them there. Now, a lot of people think the blue stones are big. They're not actually that big. They're several tons, but they're not enormous. They could have gone on a decently built boat or a well-adapted boat. So from that position, you can go down to the east to what is now Haverford West and stick them in the river in Haverford West, sail down through Milford Haven and then go cross channel, probably to Bristol or somewhere like that. Then using the same boat go up the Bristol Channel for some way, the river, the River Haven, uh, and then eventually pull them out and have to move them across country. Now, moving stones cross-country on rollers, which is the usual idea, is another one of those myths that needs to be investigated. Rolls has shown, and we've worked together and done it, as long as you can provide a flat base, which is 
split logs, put rollers of any size, really. don't have to be great big rollers, on those that flat surface. Then you put your stone on what might be called a sledge with a flat bottom. Then it rolls along so easily you can't wouldn't believe it. I mean, we, my partner and I, built a dolmen in the back garden of a friend, and we found that we were able to move about a two or three ton stone with one person, one woman, just pushing this thing along. We were sticking the rollers and boards down. Mm. So you know, all the ideas that you need great teams of hefty men heaving on ropes to move stones isn't true. Properly engineered, you can make them move. And these people didn't have to hurry. Nobody said, you've got to get it up next Wednesday. They might have spent a year or two moving stuff slowly, gathering every year to do the work, probably in the autumn, maybe even late autumn, because that was the big party time. The evidence at um, Stonehenge is that people gathered in large numbers, had special encampment, reminds me of the hot pickers in Kent, and parties, consumed lots of meat, beef and pork mainly, probably drank intoxicating drinks, mead, maybe beer, there's some evidence that you had a brew of beer, and must have then trooped over from the campsite was where Woodhenge is, Dunton, yeah. And done a few days' work that season at Stonehenge. There's no no thought that Stonehenge was built over a couple of weekends. It was years of work. Of course, that involved shifting bloody great sarsen stones a long way on the downs. Same technique that they'd worked on to move the much smaller bluestone was adapted to move the big sarsen stones. And what you need is not too many hills. Hills are the major problem. Heaving something up a hill or stopping it running away downhill is the biggest risk. Some people say they waited through the winter and slid them along on the ice. But that presents the same problem. Controlling something which is slipping about is not as good as using the roller technique, which I think they probably use. You know, places like New Grange in Ireland, I've been restricting myself to England, had a very strong impact on me. And uh, I did a bit of work in Brittany. And, and anyway, one of the, the big sites of interest is the island of Governese, which has on it a big stone-built mound, mountain. And on the south-east side of it, there's an entrance that goes into the centre. All the stones on the inside of the passage and all the stones on the chamber at the end are heavily carved. A lot of them are wavy lines and some horizontal lines, but there are the usual sort of images of that period, axes and uh, ploughs, things of that sort. Anyway, I was wondering why the passage wasn't aligned to either the maximum lunar declaration, minus declaration, or the sun. It was too far south for both of them. 
Yeah, well, you have to go out on a boat, and the French guide is a bit of a taskmaster, marches you in and tells you all the story, marches you out again. Well, when they all marched out, I lay on the floor with my compass to check the measurement. And as I was lying there, looking down the slope, I realised that it was actually pointing towards the water at the Gulf de Moriban. You can't see it now because there's a fence and a hedge. But mentally, <laughs> I took the hedge and the fence away and I suddenly saw what happened. Way away, two or three miles away, there's a bank of hills covered with trees. So when the sun rose, let's work with the sun, it would angle up at a fairly low angle, midwinter we're talking about, and finally clear the tops of the trees which is why the angle is further south. Then it would hit the water, tidal, moving. So what would come up this passageway into the chamber would be this flickering light, instant disco land. Now, I, I felt that it was probably an initiatory experience that the peop some people would have been experienced, initiate, some would be younger people, men and women, who'd never had this experience. They would have been there all night, probably chanting. By towards dawn, they'd see it glowing down the passageway, but no particular light, because the mist over the water would be illuminated, but they weren't seeing anything. Then suddenly, bang, the sun comes in line, and fragmented light comes into the chamber. I think it would be a while. You remember that. Anyway, this was September, we were there. Walked back across the lawn to the annex to the hotel we were staying in, and the lawn had lots of little mushrooms with pointy heads all the way across the lawn. I thought, wow, you just pick them in September, dry them, keep them till Christmas time, midwinter, and you could have an even bigger experience in the chamber at Governor's. That's pure speculation, but it's entirely practically possible. Okay, I think we'll draw a veil over the proceedings at that point. Uh, that's going to be it for this episode, and I hope you've enjoyed this series of talks with John Appleton. And I do apologise it's taken me so long to get all three of them out there. Uh, John is a real uh, mind of information, as you'll have gathered, and it's so important to get this sort of knowledge of the elders passed on to the younger generations. So do please uh, tell folk about all these ideas and you know, get them thinking and talking about it. It is such an important thing to, to pass on this stuff. Uh, remember, you can find more details of the subjects talked about here on John's website at johnappleton.org. That's J-O-N-A-P-P-L-E-T-O-N.org. Uh, and as usual, I'll put a link on the, uh, the main website. So that's it for now. Uh, if you have any comments about the show that you want to share, you can email us at uh, podcast at adventuresanddowsing.com or leave a comment on uh, particular episodes on the, the main website. So thank you for listening, and many thanks as always to Winter Gatton and Ian Pegler for the music, and I hope you can join me next time for more Adventures in Dowsing. <laughs> <laughs>